Thank you for listening to the first episode of Dude Check Out This Song. We got a warning for you. We screwed up the first episode. So this is the true first episode of Dude Check Out This Song. First episode was recorded completely incorrectly, plugged in backwards and upside down. We we were recording on a shoe. (laughs) If you really want to hear what we sound like in a giant tin can, you can. But this sounds way better, so you should listen to this episode. Yep, so thank you. Happy listening. Listen well. to dude check out this song i'm pat i'm ian now we're gonna start getting into those who kind of define their specific genres as they evolve you know first we're uh, my generals or my gentlemen have you know jazz and blues involved here i think yours are also very bluesy as well right? very bluesy very jazzy yeah so today we're covering blues and jazz pretty much you know there's one of the caveats I want to make is we're not necessarily saying these people were the first to do any of this. They just happen to be the first recordings that we still have. You know what I mean? Yeah, basically. So, you know, we're going to work off that. Uh, we're not making any heavy claims here. We're not historians. We're just musicians who are interested in things in the past. And a lot of this stuff may not even be your genre. Not all of you are going to be jazz or blues enthusiasts. But, you know, it's the stories themselves that really are interesting. God knows there's some jazz out there I can't stand. I'm not getting into that. (laughs) So my guy researched, uh, his name is J Mayo Inc. Williams. Inc.? Inc. That's his nickname, I-N-K. Wait, that's actually kind of badass. I really like that. Yeah, so he was born September 25th, 1894 in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Damn. Yeah. It feels like a gajillion years ago when you say 1894. That's like... Just over a lifetime ago, really, if you think about it. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, for somebody who's really spry, right? But he didn't stay. He didn't stay in Arkansas for long. When he was seven years old, his father was murdered in a shooting at a local railway station, and uh, his mom was forced to take him back to Mon- Monmouth, Illinois, and that's basically where he grew up. Monmouth, M O N M O T H. Mon, uh, maybe Monmouth. I don't know. I'm... Yeah. Uh, we're we're gonna fail at pronouncing all types of locations and people's yes, last are. names throughout this series, so you guys are gonna have to start <laughs> to forgive us now. He really excelled at academics and football. He was really good at football. Didn't find much on his, you know, like early early uh, academics, but clearly he graduated from high school because he went to Brown University, where he became a star football player. Not wait, just, hold on. Wait, you said football player? Football player. Isn't this a music podcast? We're getting to that. Don't oh, worry. Okay. Don't worry. And he wasn't just a star football player too. He was a he was a runner. You know, he's just a star athlete. It's an all around badass. Yeah. And you know, he graduates and then he uh, joins the NFL. And he in the infancy of the NFL, he was one of three African Americans in the league. Wait. So did he actually like play? Yeah. No, he played for a long what, time. What team did he play for? Okay, so he played for four different teams. The Canton Bulldogs, the Dayton Triangles, the Hammond Pros, which is his first team, and the Cleveland Bulldogs. Are those all actual NFL teams? They were back then, in the early days, when basically teams, team names, and cities changed like every year. Oh, uh, it was just kind of ownership thing. Yeah, and so it was the early, early days. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was one of three when it first started. Well, that's pretty fucking impressive. Right? While he's playing football, he gets really into music. That was basically his, you know, what what he really wanted to do was he just loved music. What, so he liked it as his pastime for when he was doing football. So instead of, like, football as a pastime, he did football for his well, job I, and I the guess, music as a pastime? Well, I guess to say he was more of a, he was a really big fan of music. Let's put it that way. Oh, okay. In the early 1920s, he starts working with Paramount Records to help them with their, uh, <clears throat> and I quote, race records 
Yeah, I know. So Paramount's all over this shit right now. <laughs> we we have two like three real big players. We oh have, yeah. We have Victor, because Victor's still like a big thing right now. We have yeah. Paramount, and then what's uh what's the third one? I can't remember. I don't know. It does. It's not relevant yeah. to this at all. So moving forward. So he becomes a talent scout for them. He's not actually a musician. He's basically a talent scout. You well, know. So so he becomes a talent scout for Paramount. While, yeah. While he's so this before or after he plays football during. So he's playing. He's playing in the NFL and scouting out. And Paramount never found out that he played football either. That's the craziest part. <laughs> so he had to hide the fact that he was playing professional football also while holding down a real job. Yeah. Okay, that's fucking amazing. I'm loving this guy already. <laughs> no, he's pretty awesome. And uh, you know, he became really good at it. He just cruised to Chicago, which was like the main base. And he just looked for talent. And at the time, everybody was, you know, was coming That sounds up. super nefarious. I'm going to cruise to Chicago and look for talent. I think that <laughs> sounds like something very different than it actually is. <laughs> well, he just basically, to quote, he strolled the African-American entertainment districts in Chicago. Oh, he said African-American. Are we quoting him on that? I'm quoting my research. Oh, the, okay. the, the, My sources. Oh, okay. Your sources. Uh, yeah. My se- my secret sources, you're not allowed to get. I feel like when you say that, it's also sounding nefarious. <laughs> Anyways, so the first uh, record he recorded was um, for a cabaret singer named Mammy Smith. He recorded a song "Crazy Blues," and that was really like the first like real big success among African American recordings, and which is like how, in general, like it, it went on to sell about two million copies. Oh, that's that's a lot. Yeah. So it was a. Uh, what year was that? Uh, I don't have a year for that. It some of the stuff the years are hard to find. Yeah. Well, they're also relative. Yeah, they, it's like they remain in print for a long time as well. Yeah, exactly. It was considered one of the first, you know, huge successes. And so you know, he just keep doing his thing and looking for more talent, and he ended up discovering some legends, like uh, he discovered Papa Charlie Jackson. Oh, we're getting to him later. Oh, we're getting to him later. And he discovered Ma Rainey. Who we're getting to next time. Yeah. But he discovered a ton of people like Ida Cox, Trixie Smith, Blind Lemon Jefferson. I know that name. Oh, yeah. We uh, all know that name. <laughs> Tam- <laughs> Tampa Red, Thomas A. Dorsey, Jimmy Blythe, Jelly Roll Morton. Oh, yes. We're going to talk about Jelly Roll later as well. Yeah. King Oliver and Freddie Keppard. I mean, to name a few. Honestly, just under that list, there are definitely some songs you should check out. Like uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson, See That My Grave Is Kept Clean. Oh, yes. We, we, all, is, we all love that song. That is a great song. I mean, we all, I personally love that song just because uh, there's a couple of versions of it that really uh, strike a fancy. This, this is a pretty cool version. It's, it's definitely a rough recording. Blind Lemon Jefferson also has a song called Black, Black Snake Moan. Uh, and then King Oliver's got a song called Riverside Riverside Blues, which is pretty badass. Oh, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. At some point, he decided to quit Paramount and start his own company called Black Patty. And whoa, whoa. What? Whoa, whoa. Black Patty. Whoa, whoa. No. Oh, nope. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm sure someone will yell at me for not getting that. But yeah, he started this label in 1927. And it didn't do that well, surprisingly enough. <laughs> um. Okay. So he tried. He tried to make his own label right before the Great Depression. Right before the Great Depression. Yeah. I feel like this is a regularly reoccurring story where somebody was going to do something really cool, and, and then the Great Depression happened. Oh Nobody man! Did anything so cool many, ever again? So many, so many stories come from just right before the Great Depression. But, I mean, he ended up, like, you know, he worked really hard at it. it. He ended up putting out 55 records, and, like, a ton of these are sought out. Probably the most important song, though, that he ever released under that label was a song by the Down Home Boys called Original Stacko Lee Blues. Ooh. Yeah. Is it actually the original? As far as I can find, it is. The original recording that of that song. is that a lot of people do that song. Right, but... As far as I can tell, that's the first recording of it. Maybe mm. not 
the first like yeah like we like we said it's only the first person who gets the microphone right. it's not necessarily uh but I, it first not my favorite version but it's a pretty good version of the song too well you can't compare with some of the people who did stack elite oh man there's so many too oh my god I mean, here's a dude listening to this song. Just type Stackily Blues in the three ways you can find that it's spelled and listen to the 50 versions of it, and every one is different and amazing. Yeah, there's so many good versions of that song. While the Great Depression's going on, label folds, and so he goes back to football. He starts coaching college football. Wait, after it. So his, 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 or his label fails and he goes back to coaching football. Yeah, because we can't get a job in music because nobody's hiring because nobody's making any money. So who do you, who's he coaching for? The Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Don't even know if they're still around. But... Morehouse College, I don't yeah. know. I'm... Yeah. But, I mean, so, yeah, he goes back to football. He's like, well, can't make money doing that anymore, so I might as well do the one other thing I'm really awesome at. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see some. I might go look up some footage if we can find him playing or something. I don't know if it's too before we I'm can. Like, well, when he was him. playing, that was probably a little early. Yeah. He stopped playing in 1926. Oh yeah, no, that's way too early. Right, for us to like find the him. year before he, uh, the year before he started his own label. Oh okay, yeah, yeah. So that's not a thing anymore then. So maybe, maybe there's some recordings of him coaching. I don't know. Yeah, they recorded weird things back then. Yeah. So he did that for uh for years, and then at the end of the 1934 season, he was hired by Decca Records to manage their uh, <clears throat> race record division. And uh, I, I like how you have a need to clear your throat. <laughs> We're managing the <coughs> race records. Yeah, it, well, it, it's not exactly a, a fun thing to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's better than last episode, though, at least. <laughs> it's a lot less racist than the, than the last episode, for sure. But then, you know, he just went on to find some more kick-ass artists, you know, uh, like Malia Jackson, Alberta Hunter, Blind Boy Fuller, Roosevelt Skies, Sleepy Johnettes, Kokomo Arnold. Uh, just, uh, this list is huge. I don't even. I don't even know who any of these people are, but these are the best nicknames. Ooh. Does he give these people these nicknames? I think cause... some of them, because listen to this guy's nickname, Bumble Bumblebee Slim. Yeah, like the, I feel like you're like, oh, well, so what's your performer name? Oh, I'm Edward Ed. I don't know. Like, <laughs> Edward like, Ed. And he's like, nah, bro, you are. Mm, can, hey, can you see? You're Spaghetti Edward. <laughs> spaghetti Edward. You like spaghetti? Spaghetti Edward. Yep. There you go, bro. You're now, you're now officially a mu- blues musician. Yeah. Slaps you on the ass and throws you out on stage. You know, and he went on to uh, start doing more small blues and jazz ensembles like the Harlem Hamfats and Louis Jordan's early bands. And I will say this. The Harlem Hamfats, dude, you guys need to check out several of these songs. I discovered them and I could not stop listening to them. Like when the sun goes down in Harlem, Root Hogger Die, and Weed Smokers Blues. Yeah, no. So we we actually uh, when we prep up, we listen to some of the music from this uh, from what we're listening to to kind of get in the zone. And those those boys know how to rock. And yeah. somehow the recordings are way better quality than a lot of the like things you find. Well, this is this is getting into the forties uh, and stuff when, you know, when he's discovering these people. And actually, um, this was ca- a type of uh, like swing jazz that was a, a precursor to rock and roll. Like this is where they think rock and roll came from is like from like the Harlem Hamfats and Louis Jordan. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because so, I'm because my guy's kind of going the opposite direction there. I think he's leaning a little towards the, the bluesy area. So. Yeah, and the other interesting about the Harlem Hamfats because I just. When I found them, I was just like, these guys are awesome. They're not from Harlem. They're based in Chicago. Well, of course. Why Why would... Yeah, you, 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 the Harlem ham fat because Chicago ham fat sounds stupid. <laughs> it kind of does, but I don't know. I just found that that to be interesting. And there were musicians from all over the country. They weren't... None of them were even from Chicago. Well, maybe we'll have to look into them a little more later. Yeah, I, th- I think that's something we'll have to look into. Um, but yeah, and so the reason why he got the, the nickname Inc. was because, uh, you know, he signed a ton of artists. I'm really glad it has nothing to do with the color of his skin because I was really no. feeling like it was just going to be because he was black. No, it just has to do with the fact that he signed so many contracts, like just tons of artists. And there's even an argument without him, blues wouldn't have evolved the way it did Yeah, because he discovered so many people. But not everybody was happy with their contracts. And so he kind of got, the, uh, you know, the nickname Inc. You know, like people mm-hmm. didn't think they're getting paid enough. You know, uh, stuff So like- he, he was working the letter of the law there. Yeah. 
with every he signed so many people. I'm sure you know some people were happy, some people weren't. Just the way things go, you know. He ended up in 1946 starting his own company again called the Chicago Southern and Ebony Label. And uh, I mean, there wasn't as many notables, but uh, he did find an artist like uh, Muddy Waters. Who? Yeah, I, I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, you should check him out, though. Muddy Waters. Muddy Waters, though. Yeah, doesn't ring a bell. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, you know, he did that for a while and then just kind of retired from the industry, you know, lived a nice fat life, you know, made all that money discovering all those people. And all that footballing. And all that footballing. Although I don't know if that was uh, made all that much money back then. Yeah, I'm not, and I'm not sure it did. Might yeah. give you some head injuries, but that's about it with them leather caps. But he made it all the way to uh, January 2nd, 1980 at the ripe old Wait, age. Wait, he lived to the 80s? Yeah. Holy motherfucker. Yeah, he lived a long time. He made it to 85. Yeah, none of my guys make it even close to that. <laughs> um, I mean, he lived, he lived a good, comfortable life. But in 2004, he was uh, posthumously inducted in the Blues Hall of Fame. Oh, so and he never played any blues, but they he put never in... played any blues. Well, that goes to show the medal of a man right there. Well, you know what I, I mean, mean, think about it. Like, like I said, uh, there's many, many people say that if it wasn't for him, blues wouldn't be where it is today. Well, because if you if you kind of look at it, he went through and found like the actual black musicians. Yeah, think about how many people would have died in obscurity without him. Yeah, exactly. Because the the reality was they were not well represented and, at the time. And at the, yeah, and at the time he was probably he was one of the few college educated uh, black people. Yeah, no, exactly. He's a college educated sports enthusiast black guy who's also like working for human rights. This yeah. guy, this guy's getting like a ten out of ten cool guy score. Oh on. no, this was a great guy. I mean that. Pretty much all I got for him, but I just that was definitely worth it because someone like that needs to be highlighted because I'd never heard of him before this episode. Yeah, I had I had no idea, literally no idea, but like that's a that's somebody who needs to be remembered. Yeah, so. remember the name Mayo Williams because Jay Mayo Williams. Yeah, you know, what a what a bad man in the in the good like jazz way, not in the bad <laughs> like bad man way, in the non white person way. <laughs> yeah, we're both crackers. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, so next we got Papa Charlie Jackson. So like I said, we're going a little bit different direction here. So this is a, a quote from a historical writer from a, like a like a musical blues historical writer named uh, Bruce Etter. And it says that uh, Papa Charlie Jackson, his, his accolade is that he's the first male singer-songwriter who, got, who played the blues who got the chance to record. Mm, the he first is, male yeah so it, the, i think actually ma rainey might have beat him out on that yeah okay it does say male so it, that yeah so he's specifically the first man who got a chance to record yeah. blues by himself he did not like for his big thing is he's a solo blues man right and so this has a lot to do like leading into like delta blues and things like this later is the tradition of the blues man like with his single guitar yeah this is the origin of that papa charlie jackson he was born November 10th, 1887, New Orleans, Louisiana. At least that's what it says on his draft card. So we're getting into the fact that this man, his his history is limited. No, yeah, nothing I, I couldn't find a ton on him. Yeah, so he's, and, I, I so, dug deep. So, yeah. I mean, we actually uh, threw a little mix up, both me and Ian did research on this gentleman. And between the two of us, still barely have enough to make a segment out of him. Yeah, barely. I, although, I'm curious to see how much you got, because I didn't get much. Yeah. So, I mean, his instruments, he actually, he played three instruments mainly. He played the guitar, the banjo, and the ukulele. Well, I also got that he played a six-string banjo, which is just a guitar anyway. Yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of what it comes down to is it looks like he played a hybrid instrument. It was a long neck six-string banjo. Yeah. So it was just a guitar with like a the banjo bucket on it. Yeah. In his youth, he played through minstrel shows and medicine shows. This is quoted from a book by... Uh, one Sheldon Harris, who was released in the 80s and then revised again in the 90s. So I'm not sure which version this actually comes from. So I'm not even going to dig into it too much, but it's from the blues who's who. None, nothing that this guy has mentioned about. He doesn't have any of his own books. Right. Like anywhere. The, he's yeah, mentioned. He's always kind of a blurb everywhere. Yeah, exactly. He's mentioned as a side effect in all of these things. Yeah. If you read into another book, I have to kind of quote these because I don't know where these guys source their information from. And I did not read the actual full book because it's mm. not mostly not about this. So I just right. kind of I read about like what I was what we were looking at here. And so he he it's it's pretty well confirmed that he played in clubs in Chicago and that he was noted for busking in the uh, Maxwell Street market. Oh, yeah. 
So that's that's like a, a, a market in Chicago that's well known for uh, blues buskers, at least back in the day. Once again, Paramount Records comes into it here because in August two, or 1924, he finds his first commercial success. He gets he with Airy Man Blues and Papa's Loudy Loudy Blues. Yeah, yeah. Those uh, these two songs are pretty good. I mean, there's it's hard to get the good recordings of them. Yeah, so. not my personal favorites of his though. Yeah, I mean, he's got a lot of really good stuff. And then in April of 1925, he also releases a couple more songs that he's well known for. Uh, Salt and Dry, or excuse me, Shave Them Dry. Uh, oh, yeah. Which yep. uh, is, is kind of dirty if you read a little bit about it. But do not Google search Shave Them Dry. Oh, lyrics, no. What is that? Sh- shave Them Dry lyrics in Google without putting this man in it. Because I don't know if it's supposed to be a cover of this song, but the lyrics that pop up have nothing to do with what he wrote and is written by. A woman who needs to find a little bit of, I don't know, Jesus or something. Raw. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Please. Uh, songs about nipples are probably a good thing. Yeah. Well, don't make that noise when I do that, Ian. <laughs> uh, just trying to be creepy. Uh, it's colloquially noted that uh, Salty Dog Blues is supposed to be uh, his most famous work. Every time I've looked at anything... Spotify hardly disagrees. Uh, it, it's just pretty much that only one song really gets any play of his. Oh, yeah. One of them has a million views on Spotify, and one of them has a thousand on the second <laughs> slot. So I'm not even going to give the name of it because, you know, if you guys really care, you'll go look because it's got to be connected to something, and I'm not trying to. Well, and honestly, like, my personal favorite songs of his was Ashtray Blues, and I Got What It Takes. Actually, I I believe Ashtray Blues is that song that has the the million oh, really? the million views. Ashtray and, Blues is pretty good. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I think the recording quality is really what makes it. It's a lot better than some. Of yeah, his, his other some songs. of his earlier stuff. That, that's definitely the era where the recording quality definitely sucked. Yeah, I mean, there's times when recording recording quality puts a nice like you know tone or color to the music, and there's times when you're like putting your ear to the speaker, going, "I wish I knew what he was saying." yeah it it gets is sometimes sometimes everything blends into one you just can't tell what's what yeah uh so on top of singing a whole lot of songs that had a whole lot to do with sex uh so one of the things that's noted is he uh wasn't just a blues musician he played a a subgenre of blues called hokum yeah that's funny dude your notes are almost exactly like mine yeah. And they run the same narrative. <laughs> well, I mean, because it's the same life. That's true. <laughs> you didn't get much more than I did, so that, that makes me feel better about my research. Yeah, well, there, like <laughs> I said, there is there is about as much as I found without buying a whole bunch of books and getting whatever yeah. there might have been and you know digging a little deeper. There's really not much to be found about this guy. Believe it or not, William Henry Jackson, as his name is, there is a whole whole lot of william henry jackson oh, yeah, I, look, I look forward to it oh well i mean i i i can't really like there's no way i can share it all but i i dug into william henry jackson's and there's a whole lot of crimes and a whole lot of stuff but none of them are the one we're looking at so you know <laughs> there might be some stuff that's pretty cool out there that could have been found if i had more information to dig into right. because i don't even have his real birth date so because he actually uh he actually claims at some points that his birthday is different and then people claim like there's there's people that we'll get into it a little yeah bit. well anyway hokum i think is what we're on <laughs> yeah so hokum is amazing so you all know what hokum is and you don't even realize it because right. you've all heard these sort of like really old school jazz songs that have these like thick narratives about sexy stuff where you know like hey my meatball is this or yeah, you know it, well, ma- and, mama shakes her pancake or yeah, whatever and it, it, it has a really repeatable chorus mm-hmm. you know yeah, something, but it it always has that like that like you know dirtiness to it. Yeah, or, and, or maybe you know sometimes it's not always dirty because they have like a heavy like you know like black rights kind of thing right. going too. So there's a lot of those sort of but like metaphors. Like the big one for notable for him is "Shake That Thing" in in the hokum because oh, uh, yeah. yeah, we'll get back to that song because there's there's a fun connection with that oh, song. Oh, nice. Uh, so uh, yeah, so he recorded with Ida Cox, Hattie McDa- or Hattie McDaniel, and Ma Rainey. Like I said, we're going to get into Ma Rainey next time. Oh, yeah. She's going to be fun. Well, now that Ian's already ruined my current dude, check out this song. Uh, I'm still <laughs> going to say it. Go check out Ashtray Blues, hey. even though Ian recommends it. Hey, I got good taste, <laughs> goddammit. <laughs>
And once again, according to Bruce Etter, Jackson got the best day of his life when he got to record with somebody uh, named Blind Arthur Blake. I had never heard of this gentleman before this, but this is apparently his idol. And they recorded a monstrous six-minute track. Holy crap. Unfortunately, nobody wanted it six minutes, so they split it in two. So it is is a part one and a part two. Of course they did. Yep, so they, they... they told him a six-minute track was so asinine that it cannot happen. But, okay, I listened to this song, and I, it, because Ian ruined my last one, this is my real dude check out this song, because it is a six-minute jam that, uh, here, I'm going to quote somebody here. Blind Arthur Blake was known as the king of the ragtime guitar. He's not a blues musician, so he's not, like, he doesn't play the same thing. No, ragtime's even, like, an early form of jazz, too. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, somebody quotes Bruce Etter, once again, this this guy wrote a, a small article on on Papa Jackson. That's one of the few things that I can actually find. He quotes it. He says, they're among the most unusual uh, sides recorded in the late 20s, containing elements of blues jam sessions, hokum recordings, and then switching seamlessly to ragtime. Nice. So That actually sounds pretty rad. Yeah. I mean, it is very cool. It, it changes several times. It's kind of, they, they're talking back and forth. It has the hokum thing where he's, you know, he's making jokes and they're, they're, Hey, what up, guy? Like, boop, boop, doop, doop. like I don't know. I'm not. I, I'm a terrible hokum musician. Obviously, <laughs> that's why we're talking about it. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, I would be doing it if I was. You know, that was my talent. All right, all right. I so ironically enough, before we started recording this, I told Ian, "Hey, brother, let's try and cut down the amount of dude check out this song so that we can actually, you know, make them powerful." Yeah, and we've loaded this episode yeah, this, with dude this, check out this, this song. This episode is just loaded with them. But I can't resist this last one. It All really right. is just too fucking good. All right. This dude, check out this song, is uh, Jackson recorded a song called Shake That Thing. And it was recovered by a band, or covered by a band uh, named Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions on a roof of a uh, coffee shop in 1964. 1964. Do you know the name of that band? I don't. Yeah, I didn't know the name of that band either. And I'm sure there's some people who are, might be listening to this who are going to be yelling through their uh, speakers oh, that they know who this music, is. Music nerds, no yeah, doubt. Yeah, well, very specific type of music nerds. We all we all know who they are. And when I finish this sentence, you'll understand why. Uh, three of the members of that band were three of the original members of the Grateful Dead. One you in, serious? Yeah, one being Jerry Garcia. No he, way. This is his band before the Grateful like, Dead. Like, this was his original band? Yeah, I'm not sure original band. He probably was in bands before this. Right, but, but like, this is original, a, like, notable band i guess this is probably his first real run right. at recording as this was a pretty damn good recording and if you find the song it's really good like actually like you know rec- not just recording quality because obviously it's in the 60s but you know jerry garcia is a damn fine musician and this oh is yeah a, this is jug band style so it's not the jam band folk that they were into later they play actually like traditional jug band folk and i'm pretty oh, sure really there's jug band style stuff going on there. I'm not going to get too much into it because I don't <laughs> want to make promises that I can't uphold, but <laughs> I, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. So if you're interested, go look at that. I mean, even if you just like the Grateful Dead, go check out that band because it's pretty cool in general. There's, there's a couple other things like, he, so he has some accolades that he doesn't really get a lot of reference for. Uh, Loan Me Your Heart appeared in a uh, Wild, Wild Perry Shriek self-titled album in 2002. I don't know who Wild Perry Shrieks is. I mean, I'm sure he's cool. <laughs> so that's not a dude check out the song. No, that's not a dude check out the song. I didn't even do check out that song. But if you're if your name is Wild Perry, which is one word spelled W I L D P A R Y, you know, maybe you make good music. And it's 2002, so that's fairly new, you know. That's probably in 2010, the uh album won the Grammy called Genuine Negro Jig. Yeah. It, wait, so, so what this year was this? 2010. 2010. Yeah. So typically, like in this episode, I was trying to avoid a little bit of racism because we got a lot of it last time. But this oh, was, man. this is like, I, 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 I had to go back and, and so it's a band called the Carolina Chocolate Drops. I have never heard of them. I don't know if you have, but they no. won a Grammy apparently. Uh, but they did uh, "Your Baby Ain't Sweet Like Mine," and apparently they're well known for for doing this live a lot. Too, oh, really? So, yeah. So and this is one of his songs. But really, there's one accolade that goes in the in his hat. And it's one I mentioned earlier when I said we were going to get back to shake that thing. Yeah. So, in 1973, on an episode called The Blind Mellow Jelly Collection <laughs> on Samford and Sons, 
Fred St- or Fred Samford, Red Fox, finds a box of old vinyls and pulls them out. I watched the whole damn episode. Oh, man. did you? Yeah, I, I was just gonna look it for the part, but I ended up watching the whole episode. So he literally, it's the it's the beginning of the episode. He pulls out the the box of records and puts this record on, and Shake That Thing comes on, and he sings along, and he shakes that thing. Red Fox is no shaking way. his ass in the middle of the screen, and, and I was like, <laughs> "Yep, there we go. That's, That's awesome." So you know, I've got nothing to say. Honestly, I'm not even going to get into his death because there's a lot of debatable things, and it's not that impressive. And let's not focus on when people die. So All right. unless it's cool. So I'm going to exit this portion of this podcast with. Uh, red fox shaking his ass to to shake that thing this is dude check out that episode (laughs) (laughs) the episode is called the blind mellow jelly collection of sanford and son wow the son wants to throw the records away literally the old man's like in there like you know dancing to the records and like his son walks in and goes nope i'm just gonna toss all your records out old (laughs) bitch (laughs) i've never watched a lot of sanford and sons but it's still fairly racist yeah all right, so we're going to get into a, a guy with what has to be one of the coolest fucking names, Jelly Roll Morton. Jelly Roll Morton. Okay, so like I said, this episode's all about first. So while uh, our Papa was the first solo blues recorded, you know. Male. Male. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jelly Roll Morton, he is the self-proclaimed actual creator of jazz. Oh, really? And that could maybe mean he was the first person to record it. That could maybe mean that he but was he was he the, first the first person, person to record it, though. Remember the original I original know. Dixieland jazz band was the first. So, so he and claimed, they claimed to have invented exactly. it. Exactly. So we're not gonna we're not gonna get into this, but he does claim <laughs> in life. In fact, he claims so hard that he actually changes his like in interviews later in life he claims he was born five years earlier in his birth certificate claims oh really yeah he actually he he straight up we'll get to that so (laughs) jelly roll morton is he's born ferdinand joseph lamoth l-a-m-o-t-h-e and then it says that he's also that name is also possibly spelled three other ways i assume that's because of handwriting i didn't look too much into it but oh yeah the other three ways are ways that if you wrote lamoth and cursive it would also maybe be them like there could be an n in there there could be no e it could be lamote right. right so you know there's there's a couple of different i can things. see why he went with jelly roll morton though yeah jelly rolls way better and there's actually a really good reason for that and it makes me laugh <laughs> I told you guys what we were getting into dirty stuff earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, the Hokan the Hokan or wait, Hokum, Hokum. Hokum was uh was just a light touch of what we're getting into. Jelly Roll's uh he's a dirty old man. Or young man at this time, I guess. He's born uh, October twentieth, eighteen ninety, in New Orleans again. Just like my previous guy. Yeah. Like I said, this is three years after the previous guy. So three years after Papa Jackson is born. Out comes Jelly Roll Morton. This is a good time for New Orleans. Right here, these these couple of years, these parents are pumping out some some prime real estate. Oh man, did you there's a lot of kick ass early Louisiana music. Yeah, just all of that era in general, really. They they knew how to make some music and it probably came from the strife involved and the evolution of music and the things that they were changing about music at the time, but it, it well, came and- up with a it, lot of there was a stuff. huge like melting pot of former slave owners and poor whites and uh, uh, former slaves all in that kind of area. Yeah, exactly. So it really became, and so this is when we're getting into this is, you know, he he's listed with a couple of jobs. I just want to give you this man's arrayed list of jobs because I wish this is what my resume looked like. He's a vaudeville comedian, a band leader and a ranger, but most importantly, one of the best known composers of his era. Really? Yeah. So he's That's a not, hell of a list. Right not there. just like a banging piano player, which we'll get into later. He actually has like such a special piano playing style that like people make note of it and things like that. Like he plays, you know, I'm not going to get too much into it, but with his bass hand, he uses the descended sixth instead of the tenth and in, in jazz that's just chaos <laughs> can't do that bro <laughs> i i mean I, I i'm a music theory guy but only kind of to play my music and do my thing uh, and so i understand uh, an understanding of a limited ability but jazz jazz theory is very 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 difficult it's a whole nother level well and it's just a whole nother level of nerddom when you get down <laughs> to the yeah, the real like grimy details of it. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's, I'm sure at this point there is no solid rules, so it's, it's the wild west of jazz. 
So uh, he was born into an isolated uh, Creole community in Faubourg, Marauk. <laughs> Let me try this again. Faubourg, Faubourg, F A U B O U R G, Faubourg. And then, and then the next word's even better: M A R I G N Y. Marigny, Faubourg Marigny. That's what I'm gonna say. Faubourg Marigny. It sounds like a dwarf's name. I think you got to do it more Frenchy than that. Uh, yeah, no. Well, I, I'm sure that. But so this is a neighborhood in downtown uh, New Orleans. I should have just said New Orleans. Uh, <laughs> this, this. Yeah, you totally should have. Yeah, I should. I should have just said that. But you know, I, I was feeling spicy. Uh, both his parents could apparently trace their lineage back to the 18th century. Uh, four full generations of Creole. This is all quoted in, so so I'm not going to get too much into this guy's actual biography because there is a fuck ton of it. Yeah. Uh, NPR did a whole like documentary on this guy. This, oh, guy, this really? guy wrote, some dude wrote essays on this man's genealogy. Uh, people got really deep into his history. So oh, that's I, crazy. So I'm, if I'm going to, like, I, we're going to kind of cover our narrative and make sure that we cover what we want to talk about, but I'm not going to get into all of it because if you really want to learn more about Jelly Roll Morton, hit that Google, type Jelly Roll Morton. Even just type NPR after it. There's a really good NPR documentary. I, I listen to the whole thing. It's worth listening to. There's a lot of actual sources. So we're going to kind of make sure that we, we cover the stuff that's going to keep you guys entertained. Well, I'm not going to bother you with the uh, NPR. Well, and then yes, next in his life. Yes, and then next on Tuesday, he had an egg roll. I got to work on my uh, NPR voice, I guess. Yeah, me too. All right. So anyways, we're getting off. Uh, so his his baptismal birth certificate says his birth date was October 20th, 1890. But the, one of the guys who wrote, let me hold on. Let me look at the reference. A gentleman with the last name of Hanley. His research leads that it's more likely October 20th, 1890. And then a gentleman from Yale named John Zwed, S-Z-W-E-D. That's a pretty cool last name, if I knew how it was pronounced from Yale. Uh, he, on, on the other hand, prefers a date somewhere landing in 1895 instead. Oh, really? Yeah, so it, there's historians who are even still arguing about when he's when he was doing. Oh, it's Peter Hanley, excuse me. Yeah, so he, read, he wrote Jelly Roll Morton, an essay in genealogy. So <laughs> apparently, I'm not sure what it was all about, but apparently Jelly Roll's Creole an- ancestry was well enough written down because they had stayed in the same place that it... I don't know. Enough records. I yeah. mean, did they even keep that good of records back then, though? I mean, if you're a small, tight-knit community, maybe there's enough information to where they could get away with right. it. Or they, or they got one of the books or something. A lot of it has to do with what information you get your hands on. Right. At the age of 15, Morton started working as a piano player in a brothel. Really? So this is where the sexy part starts happening. He's 14 years old, working in a brothel. 14 of 14 prime masturbation years oh, it's, too. It, it gets so much better so at the time he's living with his great grandmother great grandma devout christian he tells her every night he's leaving he's he's a night watchman in a barrel factory grandma <laughs> this barrel factory they got a bunch of hoodlums breaking in there all night i gotta get out there and i gotta chase hoodlums away ma gotta stop them criminals definitely no titties involved nope Nope, no titties for No, none at all. None at all. So, yeah, in that atmosphere, uh, he often sang songs of heavily smutty lyrics involved because it was a fucking brothel. Right. Uh, they referred to these as sporting clubs at the time. Because, oh, uh, really? They weren't even gentlemen's clubs? No, no. So sporting clubs because only the men were allowed in. It was about sports. Women didn't like sports. Oh, yeah. Except for the women who went in the back door. That euphemism carried over. <laughs> Don't laugh like that when I say stuff like that, Ian. And someone needs to laugh like that when you say stuff like that. <laughs> All right, so, and this is where he picked up the nickname Jelly Roll. And this is where it really starts to fly off the fucking handle because I went and looked up the source for this information because I didn't quite want to believe it. There's a dictionary for slang for African-American people in this generation. Okay. Do you know what Jelly Roll is slang for? No. Female reproductive organ. Really? Yes. Yeah, so he is, and it, so it it is. People pick up this nickname not only because they are it, but because they love it. 
So at they basically called it. They basically old. called him Pussy Morton. Yeah, at fifteen <laughs> years old, they they give this kid the nickname Pussy Morgan, and it's not just because he likes pussy, but because he probably gets so goddamn much of it playing these nasty fourteen-year-old songs on the piano. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's awesome yeah so it's uh it's it's pretty nefarious if you ask me but uh i don't know i've said that word too many times this evening already <laughs> uh but yeah all the while uh telling his church going grand grandmother that he's uh he's he's slinging barrels so apparently uh not long after that jelly roll morton's grandmother not his great grandmother but his grandmother based on the research uh found out he was playing jazz in a brothel and disowned him from the lamont name uh-oh. Yep, busted. Yep. So, uh... You sin, boy. You can't be around uh, here anymore. Lamoth. 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 I'm not... It's some French name. <laughs> I don't know, bro. Goddamn French. Uh, here's a quote from the man himself. Uh, when my grandmother found out I was playing jazz in one of them sporting houses in the district, she told me that I was disgraced to the family and forbade me from ever leaving the house again. She told me the devil's music would surely bring about my downfall, but I just couldn't put it behind me. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, God, I hope somebody quotes me like that someday. That's a... I'm gonna have to say more shit like that. You're gonna have to do more shit first. Oh, you shut your bitch-ass mouth. <laughs> uh, 1912 to 1914 Morton toured with his girlfriend Rosa Brown as a vaudeville act you know if, for those who don't know vaudeville is it's like comedy but it's like acted out comedy They they it's like uh, kind of like a stage play it, but in comedic value where they break the fourth wall and talk to the crowd and it's kind of like an early sketch comedy like yeah, it's thing. A, it's it's with really music cool. though too. Yeah, if you Lots if you don't know about vaudeville, like literally just check out some you know some Groucho Marx. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna I was just gonna say Marx Brothers. Yeah, Marx Brothers is the best option, especially like for a modern audience. By nineteen fourteen, he'd started writing down his compositions. At this point, oh oh, he'd stepped the whole thing up, whole level. He's he's writing shit down now. And in 1915, his... Wait, so that means he was actually literate then? Well, I mean, of course he was. Well, because a lot of these early uh, blues musicians weren't literate. Yeah, it's not directly said, but it is kind of implied that since in 1914, writing down was a revolution for him, he probably either had just learned to write music or maybe, in a more extreme case, had just learned to write. Oh, okay. Okay. So I mean, there's there's no definite answer on it. I'm sure he wouldn't have told anybody if he'd just learned to write. You know what I mean? So, right. So we're not we're not going to suppose on anything because I'm not trying to you know portray people in a negative light. No, I just here. thought that was interesting because a lot of these early blues musicians, you know, they really uh, were totally illiterate and they just remembered everything. Yeah. No. I mean, well, Lead Belly. That's his. He was him trying to write down his last name. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's the way the the folk story goes. I don't know where the validity on that lands. We'll, we'll find out more about that sometime. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we're getting into those boys in a little while. Yeah. yeah. In 1915, his Jelly Roll Blues, which was arguably the first jazz composition ever published. Oh, really? 1915. 1915. And, and it says arguably the first jazz composition hmm. ever published. That's so, interesting. And this is based on The Devil's Music, A History of Blues by uh, Giles Oakley. Kind of sounds like a book I want to read. Yeah, 1997 it was released. I, I read a few excerpts of it. It's 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 worth it. So, you know, if we're not doing dude check out the songs <laughs> for the rest of the episode, dude, maybe read that book. I don't know if you if you like that kind of stuff. <laughs> In 1917, he followed this band leader William Manuel or William Manuel Johnson to uh, John or and Johnson's sister Anita Gomez to California, where uh, Morton's tango "The Crave" became an instant sensation across Hollywood. This actually is quoted from another book, Jelly Roll or Jelly's Blues: The Life, Music, and Redemption of Jelly Roll Morton by Howard Reich and William Ga- or Gaines. Like I said, a lot of people have actually really dug into this guy's life. There's that's almost, crazy. That's a he's got a lot of information for someone from so long ago. Yeah, exactly. And like, I'm actually kind of I was picky about the information that I picked out because right. there's so many or so much of it. He, yeah, I I had to pat the information I got uh, <laughs> from Mayo just because 
it was like you know like maybe like a two-page term paper for college of information i found on him yeah exactly and you know so it's it's nice every once in a while to have that we're not trying to focus on anything that's too overly done even when we do more more subjects that are popular we're going to try and focus on smaller unknown portions of it just to you know, make it make sure you guys are listening to stuff you don't already know and yeah, keep it interesting. Well, I mean, for the basic facts, any too, anyway. So well, exactly, we build our build the narrative here. But speaking of narrative, in nineteen uh, or in November nineteen twenty eight, uh, Morton married Mabel Bartand. She was a showgirl. Oh, really? Yeah, and so they got married in Gary, Indiana. Well, I guess he did come up in that world, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I mean, so it's it's all going really good here, and so nothing really between. 1928 1938 that is bad for the man he he records a whole lot of music with a whole lot of people ups and downs a whole lot of tracks he he ends up he made it through the depression though a lot of these early musicians yeah their kind of career died with the depression too. yeah exactly so he was actually doing pretty well all up until 1938 no what no (laughs) he was doing really good up until then until he was stabbed about the face head and chest by a friend of the owner of a club called the Music Box. No. Uh, he suffered, and I quote, what should have been fatal wounds to the head, chest, and upper face. Wait, should have been? Yeah, he, he, well, he doesn't die right away. No. So, uh, yeah, and it gets, it gets so much worse. They pack him in the car and they drive him to the nearest hospital, which turns out to be a whites-only hospital, and they refuse him at the front door. What? Are yeah, you they, kidding they, me? They, they dead-ass won't let him in because apparently at this time, uh, the, all the facilities that are state-run are still segregated. No. So the, the state-run hospital will oh. not serve him because he is not white. Oh, my white. God. Uh, he is transported to a black hospital further away when he's in the hospital, even when he gets there. The doctors, and I quote out of his own mouth, the doctors left the ice on my wounds for several hours before even attempting to attend my injury, and then it turned out to be near fatal. Oh my god. So they just were just like, nah, we're not gonna help you. You're yeah, cool. so he so the the white hospital refused him. They drove him to a black hospital and get there and the doctors threw ice on him. Wait your damn turn. Like you're like like <laughs> oh you're already god. dead and we just don't want you to rot in here. Oh, like man. that's what that says to me. That's not mm. that's not something like <sighs> anyways. Uh so after that he, his his recovery from his wounds is never fully completed until oh. his death. Three years later. No, he suffered for three years from that wound. So, yeah. Did, it, did it, you ever find out why he was stabbed? No, it, it's the the reason for his stabbing is is never. It's just a mystery to yeah, this day. So, but it was it was a friend of the club owner, and they they had some sort of. I uh, bet you it was a dispute over money then, yeah, or something. Or they found out what the word jelly roll meant. You mean I've been I've been hiring pussy all these years. <laughs> Anyways. It got way worse from there. His, it gets worse? Yeah, so his, his wounds are never fully completed. Uh, thereafter, he is completely ill, and he becomes easily short of breath all the time. Oh, so he can't sing, man. Yeah, he can't sing. I play the piano, man. You can't play the piano if you're short of breath. That's that's your whole body. That is true. When I play guitar, man, like, when I'm doing something heavy, it yeah, you're breathing. You, if you can't breathe, like, yeah. you, you can't do that affects your that affects everything. Yeah, it's it's your brain, it's everything. And then, oh, you know, man. after after the incident, his wife Mabel demanded that he'd completely leave uh, Washington. So they packed up their house in Washington and left. Really? Yeah. Where'd they go to? It appears that he eventually perishes in Los Angeles uh, in a hospital. So he I made assume, it that far. So it, well, I mean, it it took three years after the incident. His worsening asthma sent him to a hospital uh, in New York first uh, for three months at one point. So oh in this God, in and the, hospitals back then too, yeah, so butchers. Of this three months, he spent three or of this three years, he spent three months in the hospital in New York, and then he considered or continued even after uh, being released from them to have respiratory problems, uh, and eventually was uh, visiting Los Angeles when a series of or with a series of manuscripts new tunes arrangements and a whole written out plan for a brand new band to reset his career oh so he kept trying to write music till the day he died huh and morton morton died on july 10th 1941 after an 11 day stay at los angeles general hospital ah dude so he just basically went from hospital to hospital 
while like still writing music and being like, I'm about to re, as soon as this shit's over, I'm about to restart well, my I'm career. about to blow, blow the fuck up, yeah. is what he was saying. Oh, man. That is that is rough. That's kind of a blues ending, though, if you yeah, think about it. Yeah, it really is. Like, he doesn't give up till the very end. So, I mean, honestly, no matter what happened, we got to give him the thumbs up for, for all of that. Yeah. Like, well, we really do. It gets better. I mean, obviously, he dies there, so it doesn't, <laughs> you can't really make that better. But... He's a he's a zombie blues musician, is what you're telling me. So uh, Alan Lomax, we love Alan Lomax here in this channel. We we're big fans of Alan Lomax. He saves a lot of really important music in 2005. Some music that Alan Lomax had recorded becomes released of Jelly Roll Morton. The albums are very well received. In 2005, he he gets the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award along the names such as the Carter Family, Janis Joplin. Led Zeppelin, Jerry Lee Lewis, and uh, a couple other people who I really don't know the name of. But he, yeah, he went in, he got the Lifetime Achievement Award alongside Janice Chaplin and Led Zeppelin. So. That's pretty awesome. Chaplin. Chaplin. But yeah, so I mean, you know, there's something there. That's pretty awesome. I mean, you know, it may be posthumous as we, uh, as, now, as we've dealt with already yeah. this episode, but that seems to be a thing around this time too. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these people weren't really, uh, they weren't really appreciated for what they were when they were doing it, but they should have been. Well, they, pro- I think they were, but they were easily forgotten too. Yeah. No, exactly. And because music, well, music was so new. There's so much uh, creativity and technology coming out like every day. And like I said, it just it happens to be who raced to the mic first, right? And not even realizing that a recording thing was going to be the future. And your career could be over in a flash. Yeah, exactly. You'd be the big thing for six months, and the next thing you know, you're on back playing in the bars again. Yeah, I can't even tell you how many people I've researched are the king of something in this era. Everybody's <laughs> the king of something. Like that guy. That guy had no idea who his name was earlier, and I can't even remember now. Is the king. Well, I mean, we had a fantastic evening tonight. Yeah, I think that was a good episode. I really thank everybody for coming out. Yeah, thank you guys. This is Dude Check Out Your Song, or Dude Check Out This Song. (laughs) Of course I fuck up the (laughs) the name of the fucking podcast on the way out. But you know what? That's just the way it's going to be. Seriously, thank you guys so much for coming out. Yeah, thank you guys. And if you want more, check out our social media. We got Facebook, we got Twitter, and we got Spotify. That's right. If you want to do check out this song, do check out our Spotify because we're making playlists for every episode. Yeah. If you want more after the episode, listen to the Spotify playlist. We've got all the songs we recommended and then some. If you like us a lot, give us a high rating on whatever platform you look at. And if you got any artists you want to suggest, let us know. We would love to make an episode about them. Yeah. So have a good evening. Bye.